where am I going to spend the night? Where am I going to eat? Where am I going to change the baby? I'm out of diapers. Where am I going to use the bathroom? How am I going to speak here? I don't speak Polish. Hi there, it's WAMC News Director Ian Pekes. And on this episode of the WAMC News Podcast, the ties between the Northeast and war-torn Ukraine. Well, over the next few episodes of this podcast, I'm going to play you some special segments from a WAMC news series marking the first anniversary of Russia's invasion of Ukraine. As we found out, there are many ties between the Northeast and the war-torn nation, and several people in our listening area have made the trip to help any way they can. First up, a woman in western Massachusetts is behind an NGO working to build comprehensive supportive housing for Ukrainians who are forced from their homes, jobs, and daily life. And for her, the struggle is deeply personal. WAMC's Berkshire Bureau Chief Josh Landis has the story. Nadia Kachenko, the founder and president of Project Nadia, is a mother of four living in the Franklin County community of Montague. Originally, I am from Kazakhstan. That's where I was born and raised. Ethnically, I'm Ukrainian. So with this conflict in Ukraine, uh, I was called to dive in and help out. Kachenko's family has deep ties to the land. During the Soviet era, her parents were pressured to move from Ukraine and work in nearby Kazakhstan. And it's not a unique story. Uh, many people in Kazakhstan specifically came from other republics, so it's very multinational. There's many Russian people, many Ukrainian people live there. Um, but having grown up in Kazakhstan, every summer my family took me to Ukraine. So we would take a train from Almaty, Kazakhstan, to Kiev, and it would take three and a half days on a train every summer, and we'd spend time in tiny little villages where my dad is from, uh, not, far, not far from Chernihiv, which is north of Kiev. It's an area that was attacked by Russia during one of the first days of the war. Um, and then we would take another train to southern Ukraine and spend the other half of the summer in Mariupol, which everybody has heard about, about Azovstal. And then we'd get on a train and go back to Kazakhstan. And so this would happen every summer. While the regular visits kept a strong sense of Ukrainian identity alive, the Kachenko family also longed to return. My dad, since he moved to Kazakhstan every day of his life, he's been dreaming back about going back to Ukraine. And so he always painted this ideal picture for me of the green hills and the beautiful rivers and the foods and the people and the language. So in a way, you know, since my childhood, he kind of idealized the area, the place where he wanted to go back to and live. But in the Soviet Union, if you were placed in a certain town and had a job, um, the complication was that it was extremely difficult to move. You had to register with the local authorities. And even if you really, really, really wanted to move somewhere, chances were very slim. So my dad's dream of moving to Ukraine never materialized. Along with the picturesque memories of Ukraine were the equally bleak memories of war, trauma, and brutality. My dad's life, his childhood is from that part of Ukraine, you know, tiny villages, but his childhood goes back to pre-World War II and the time of the famine of Holodomor and his stories of, you know, surviving on soup made of weeds and bread made out of flowers that they ground into flowers. So 
the way he talked about Ukraine was a combination of this idyllic place uh, where he wanted to live, but also some stories of hardship of his childhood. That was part of my childhood growing up, learning those stories of, of him as a child in the Ukraine that when it was struggling during the Soviet times and during World War II. And he actually, my, my father actually was a child soldier in World War II. He was 14 years old and he was studying art in uh, Kiev and literally was invited to a recruitment office, given a gun and told to go fight for the Soviets. A city girl in Kazakhstan, Kachenko's time with her extended family in rural Ukraine was a marvelous contrast. My aunts and uncles had cows and goats and chickens and, you know, I remember them asking me if I wanted to milk a cow and being a city girl, I really didn't want to touch the animal, <laughs> um, things like that. And a lot of them also had a lifestyle where they had large vegetable gardens, fruit and berries, and in a way it was subsistence living where they pretty much grew their own food for the most part. And what they didn't grow, they could either buy or barter with neighbors. Such was her love of Ukraine. Kachenko decided to spend a year going to high school in Mariupol the southeastern city on the Sea of Azov. I lived on the outskirts. I lived with my cousin. She had her own house. She also had a huge garden. She, she raised pigs and goats. And so she introduced me to that lifestyle. And I helped her out. And I helped her take some of the produce to the market, which was very new to me. I didn't do that growing up in a big city. The city of Mariupol is really beautiful. It's on the sea, it has a wonderful beach. So those are my memories of Mariupol. It's quiet, calm city with beautiful architecture where you know people would come to, to go to the seashore every summer. And that's, that's the place where my family and I had their beach time. So to think of those memories of idyllic childhood beach vacation and now Mariupol being one of the you know, the hot spots of the war and a place that's completely destroyed to the ground is heartbreaking, but also almost, you know, hard to believe, hard to imagine until, you know, I probably have a chance to go there, then it will hit hard, but it's just hard to keep both images in, in one's mind. She returned to Ukraine again in the aughts with the man who had become her husband showing him the world of both her family and the magical childhood memories impressed upon her by her parents and their summer trips home. When we ended up having children some years after that, we wanted to make sure that that identity is transferred to them in some little ways. So, for example, their, their last name is my last name, is a Ukrainian last name. Most of my kids have a Ukrainian first name as well, so little things like that. In 2014, war broke out between Russia and Ukraine, lighting a long fuse that would eventually blow up into the full-scale invasion of 2022. At this point, Kachenko was raising her family and focusing on life in Western Mass. Her husband works at Amherst College, and she started a life coaching business in 2010. There was a lot of confusing information coming through, through the media here, versus information that coming th was coming through to my parents in Kazakhstan about what's going on in Ukraine. So it, it was a very confusing time to understand what is really going on, who is attacking who and why. And there was propaganda that, 
you know, my parents were fed and they were giving me that information and I was hearing new information here. The violence challenged some of Kachenko's long-held beliefs about her family's homeland. One of the things I keep saying to my husband and to my kids that having grown up in post-World War Soviet Union, having grown up with a father who fought in World War II, having heard his stories of horror of what war is like, what kind of losses it can bring, how really mind-boggling it is that one group of people can attack another group of people. Having grown up with those stories and with this idyllic sense that was instilled in me by my parents, I guess, that this kind of thing will never happen in my lifetime. I knew the horrors of World War II, and I was 100% sure that there was going to be no war on the land of my ancestors ever after that experience. So when you start to see guns and tanks and people attacking each other, people living just across the border, the first reaction is kind of like this sense of, you know, how is this possible? The outbreak of violence again in 2022 caught up with Kachenko when she least expected it. In February of last year, my family and I took a vacation in uh, Puerto Rico and we rented a house that my husband pointed out from the day we moved in. He said, look, it's colored in Ukrainian colors. And it was true. Half the house was bright yellow, half the house was bright blue. And we moved into the house on February 22nd. On February 24th, he woke me up and said, honey, I'm sorry, Russia invaded Ukraine. And it was complete shock. And we all felt really, really trapped and not able to do anything. We were not in home. We were supposed to be, you know, entertaining our young children. We didn't tell them uh, that that's what's happening. You know, our older teenagers, we told them, but the younger kids... You know, we were supposed to put up a, a fun front and entertain them on the beach, but deep inside our hearts were breaking and we felt trapped in the sense that, you know, we were watching the news, reading the news, we couldn't do anything, especially being so far away from home. We didn't even have neighbors or friends to talk to. We were just on this beautiful paradise island and yet inside we knew there was a war going on and people were dying. Upon returning to Montague, Kachenko got in touch with her brother and his contacts among Ukrainians caught up in the conflict. At first, her efforts to help consisted of using her savings to help buy people tickets out or away from the front lines. One of the people Kachenko met along the way caused her to step up her efforts. She was, you know, a professor at a local university in Kiev. And as soon as the war started, she realized uh, that a lot of elderly people who didn't have anybody living with them would need a lot of support. For example, as soon as the war started, people probably all over Ukraine, but I know from this person in, in Kiev, they ran to the pharmacies and they bought all kinds of medicines that were in the pharmacies just to have because there was this fear that there will be nothing left in the stores. Food, water also, but medicines specifically. And so the elderly people didn't have access to their daily medication that they needed. They also couldn't get through to the pharmacies or stand in long lines because there were these checkpoints on the roads, transportation, public transportation wasn't running. So it was this chaos. And so this friend of my brother's realized that the way she was going to help is she was going to 
knock on the doors of elderly people, ask them what kind of medications they needed. She would go and stand in a long line, seek out what they needed and bring it to them. And she just volunteered to do that. And I supported her with funds to, to be able to do that, to provide medication to people. With need growing by the day, Kachenko soon found new projects. This other group of people, basically three, three guys who helped rescue people from under rubble in a destroyed city of Chernihiv, which is the area where my father is from. And free of charge, they would put, put people in their private cars and drive them to the border. And then they would pick up supplies at the border of Poland and bring them back to the destroyed city. Anything, water, food, batteries, flashlights, whatever it is. And they would do this back and forth. So what they needed help with is buying larger vehicles. Because we have these three drivers who are ready to drive across Ukraine under, you know, under fire. There's bombs falling and artillery fire, and they are finding a safe way to get through. They're risking their own lives. So if they had larger vehicles, they could transport more people. Kachenko started a GoFundMe to secure the vehicles, which in time expanded to buying Ukrainians drones for reconnaissance and protective gear for frontline soldiers. In short order, she got an invitation to actually go to the border to support those fleeing into Poland to the west. In my heart, I was torn because it, it was just the start of the war. There was a lot of uncertainty. Even going to Poland felt a little bit dangerous. Like, how, why would I do that and leave my four children at home? You know, I was questioning all of that in my heart. But there was a deeper deeper feeling somewhere, maybe like what you call a gut feeling or visceral call, ancestral call that was stronger than the doubts that I had in my mind, stronger than the doubts that I had in my heart even, that just kind of kept saying, you know, you have to go. You have to go and be there with your people. With that, Kachenko was off to Poland. And I brought cash to Ukraine, to the border of Poland and Ukraine, and gave stipends, gave out envelopes with stipends to mothers with children, to single women, to elderly women. It was mostly women and children crossing the border. So that was one way in which I was helping. And then I also was helping people find hotels and pay for hotels for temporary stays, like three weeks, four weeks. But literally to, to paint you a picture of, of what was going on, you know, you imagine yourself at this um, checkpoint, a cross-border checkpoint in the middle of nowhere between Ukraine and Poland with a barbed wire in between. There are hundreds and thousands of people just pouring in across the checkpoint. Once they come into Poland, you can just see this sigh of relief on one hand that they have, this sigh of relief like, I'm safe now. On the other hand, in their eyes, you see this worry, what's next? Okay, I'm safe now, but where am I going to spend the night? Where am I going to eat? Where am I going to change the baby? I'm out of diapers. Where am I going to use the bathroom? How am I going to speak here? I don't speak Polish. How am I going to use my phone? Suddenly my cell phone doesn't work. It's a whole different country. And you can see, see this in their faces, this confusion and fear about what's next, even though they've escaped probably the worst. Kachenko spent two and a half weeks helping distraught evacuees find short-term housing in Poland and adjust to life in exile. But the work she was doing didn't seem to match up against the gravity of the challenges the Ukrainians faced. So I decided to focus 
my attention on the possibility of, you know, what can I do? How can I help people find or, you know, how can I provide places for them where they can live in a dignified way, not on the floor in a shelter that wasn't suitable for winter? How can they be somewhere where they can live for a little while, call it a home, until they figure out their next steps? In May, Kachenko actually entered Ukraine for the first time in years to see the situation for herself. I did not go to the areas that I visited as a child because those areas are not quite um, safe right now. So that made it a little bit easier. I didn't actually see the, the specific places where I spent my childhood, where my parents uh, grew up. But still, crossing the border into Ukraine, which you, you, know, you have to do on land now, you can't fly into Ukraine, and immediately seeing people with guns, in uniform, checkpoints, uh, you suddenly realize, wow, I'm in, in a war zone. I'm in a war-torn country. I can't describe the feelings really except for, you know, heartbreak. While Western Ukraine was less ravaged by conflict than the East, it was still surreal. When you arrive into a city there, it almost looks like nothing is wrong from the first glance. You feel like people are smiling, walking around, they're beautifully dressed, they're drinking coffee in cafes, but then you start to notice signs of this being a war-torn country. You start to see people in uniforms. You start to see injured soldiers walking around because Western Ukraine is where a lot of them go to the hospitals or to rehab after an injury. So you'll see people with missing limbs. You'll see people with you know, metal plates in their arms just walking around the city. And that's one sign that's really disturbing and really brings it home. And then you start to notice that all official buildings are surrounded by piles of sandbags, like protective sandbags, uh, with little openings in them for the guards to, to use a gun if need be. You suddenly realize, okay, yes, this is, a, this is a war zone. She quickly became accustomed to the ubiquitous air raid sirens. They sound every few hours. They sound all across Ukraine, even in areas that are relatively safe, just in case. Um, and it's a sound that I'll never forget. I never expected it to be so um, alarming. It's, it's meant to be alarming, <laughs> but it's also extremely anxiety provoking when you hear it and it goes on and on and it's so loud. I can't even imagine people living with that sound even in areas that haven't been hit, living with that sound day in and day out and at night. During the day, you can sort of explain it to yourself and say, well, they're sounding them everywhere just in case. It's okay, we're, we're safe here in Western Ukraine. But at night, when you're woken up from your sleep, you have no idea where you are, what's going on, and you hear an air raid. And, you know, all of the stress hormones are up <laughs> as high as the roof. On this trip, Kuchenko focused on interviewing displaced people, 
as well as regional and municipal authorities, to find out how to most effectively house and support those forced to abandon their homes and livelihoods. People were living in very crowded conditions in schools, gyms, by then, not, not so much train stations anymore, like the stuff we saw in the news. People were accommodated. They had a roof over their head, but it was really crowded in places that, you know, they would have a sh one shower per 100 people, no kitchen to cook. So they were totally depending on humanitarian food assistance and eating you know, canned fish, breakfast, lunch, and dinner. It was clear that housing wasn't the only answer. Simply having a roof over their head is just part of the solution. Helping them with this kind of economic integration, social support is the second key piece that they need in order to stand on their own two feet to start to piece their lives together, to start to feel like they can live somewhere, a functioning life, not a fully functioning you know, if especially if, you know, if somebody's husband is in the, in the front lines and their sister is in Germany, it's still not fully normal, but better, better than living in a shelter and depending on humanitarian food aid. So we developed this concept for, for our organization that would involve providing dignified housing and social integration support, things like employment assistance, professional requalification if people were willing to requalify and do a different job from the one they were originally trained for just in order to stay afloat language classes IT training so that some people could potentially work online childcare so that moms who are now single moms because their husbands are in a different location so that those moms could work at this point, what started as personal donations and evolved into a GoFundMe became an international NGO, Project Nadia. And I have to laugh because, you know, people may think I named the company after myself, but the word Nadia means hope. And the seed for, I guess the seed for the name of the organization was planted way back when I was at the border, before I even knew that I was going to have an organization like this. When I would introduce myself to people and say, my name is Nadia, I will help you, they would melt in my arms, start tearing up and say, Nadia is what we need right now. Kachenko was last in Ukraine in the fall. I came across the border on October 10th, which may not mean anything to anybody here, but October 10th was the beginning of the new, new attacks on Kiev, new attacks all over Ukraine with kamikaze drones. So this, this was the first time there was a, one of the biggest attacks since the start of the war that happened on the day I came into Ukraine. And on that day, there were casualties in Kiev and across Ukraine. There was a big missile that hit a playground right in the middle of Kiev. Through it all, she traveled from Western Ukraine to Kiev to meet with potential donors and collaborators. We arrived in Kiev on the 17th and the next round of kamikaze drone attacks took place that day. And I was in my hotel at 6.30 a.m. and I heard six or seven boom ba, really strong, really like, loud, really nearby, with windows shaking. Air raids were going on all night. 
But then, yeah, at 6.30 or 7, there were these six hits really close by. Um, didn't know where exactly, but then, you know, as soon as it hit the news, I realized that the one of the drones fell literally three blocks away from me. And unfortunately, it hit a, an apartment building and many casualties, many injuries. Um, but one particular that, you know, really stands out was a couple that were expecting a baby that just were killed in their bed. Project Nadia's goal is to rethink how housing is offered to displaced people. What we typically think of refugee housing as either tents or container homes or kind of these temporary little homes. The people in Ukraine really want to live in conditions that are more dignified, you know, understandably. Um, and also the politicians, the mayors, the regional administration, they really want to see their cities remain beautiful and they want buildings that will last, not fast build, not container homes. And so what we came to after our conversations with them is that the most kind of time, time efficient and cost effective choice for providing housing to refugees is to actually work on refurbishing existing empty buildings. For some reason, in Ukraine, in each village, in each town, there are several empty buildings. I guess very similar to Western Massachusetts here, where we have old mills, that kind of thing. So there they would have old dorms, old clinics, old schools that haven't been used for a while, but they're empty. They have strong bones. Refurbishing old buildings keeps displaced people without cars in centralized locations while lessening the sense of isolation. The pilot program for Project Nadia is an old dormitory in the Zakarpatia Oblast near the city of Ujarat. We're still raising funds for this particular building because part of the building is designated as a social or learning or community center. So there's rooms for 100 people, you know, small families, moms and kids. And then there's another part to the building that will, when it's finished, it's, it will host a childcare room. It'll host kind of like a conference room or classroom where people can get uh, the support that they need with employment assistance or psychological support or legal assistance, things like that. With $400,000 raised so far, there's still around $100,000 to go. Kachenko says her Western Mass community has been behind her from the start. A lot of my supporters, my first supporters, came from Montague, people who donated the first, you know, $100, $250, you know, that started pouring into my GoFundMe back in March of last year. Uh, it came from people that live here, from my neighbors, people that know me well, or people who only heard of me through through their neighbors. So um, it's been an extremely supportive community. Before my first trip to the border of Poland and Ukraine, I received several recorded songs uh, from a group of singers that meet here on, on the green here in Montague that really wanted me to, to bring the sounds of Montague with me on the road. And they were really special, heartwarming songs that were on my phone that I listened to when I was there. For Kachenko's father, who long dreamed of a return to Ukraine, 
The realities of old age have softened the blow of the renewed conflict that has leveled his beloved country. My dad at this point is 95 and his um, memory is fading, his hearing, his eyesight are fading. So he's not fully understanding what's going on. And I think in a way it's a blessing because I think it would be very, very hard for him to see what's happening on, on his land. Um, he knows there's a war because he can see on television tanks and guns and things like that. And when I talk to him, he just says things like, I don't care who is right or wrong. I just want people to stop fighting. I just want there to be peace. And I think that comes, even despite the fact that his memory is fading, it comes deep down from his heart. Like in the end, just stop fighting. Just whatever the reasons are, I want everybody to be peaceful and I want to see my grandchildren and that sort of thing. So it's tricky to know exactly what's going on through, through his mind. Thousands of miles from a homeland she watches burn from afar, Kachenko's plea to her fellow Americans is simply to not forget. The interest and the enthusiasm, I guess, is, is fading for understandable reasons. You know, we, we have our own stuff going on. We have elections, we have hurricanes, we have this and that. We have our own migration issues to deal with in, in the United States. But the war of this scale is unprecedented. And the war is not finished by any means. And the needs of regular citizens like, like us are growing. They're not diminishing, they're growing the dire needs for support, for housing, for food, for medical supplies. And it's important for us to just keep remembering that and keep refreshing in our memory that, you know, if, if there's capacity to support any efforts, not necessarily my efforts, but any efforts that have to do with Ukraine, whatever calls your passion, please continue to support Ukraine. Reporting from the WAMC News, Berkshire Bureau at the Beacon Cinema, I'm Josh Landis. Now we go to northern New York, where WAMC's North Country Bureau Chief Pat Bradley met a Saranac Lake veterinarian who traveled to Ukraine to help animals and saw the impact of the war firsthand. I meet Dr. John Kogar at his home just north of Saranac Lake on a cool morning as a wintry cloud cover settles over the landscape. Hello. Hi, how are you, Dr. Kogar? Good. Too bad it's not sunny. See, on a clear day, you can see Whiteface Mountain right there. It's right there. Leaving this pastoral setting in the Adirondacks, Dr. Kogar traveled to Ukraine last October, spending 10 days working at a veterinary clinic in Irpine, east of Kyiv. He explained how he made the decision to go to Ukraine in the midst of a war. I was on five United States national bobsled teams. I got to meet Dmitry Feld, who was the head of the U.S. luge team. We got to be good friends. And he was from Russia slash Ukraine. But he was raised in Ukraine, and he considers himself Ukrainian. So over the next 25, 30 years, I took care of his animals, being his veterinarian in the area. So when this horrible, unjustified invasion took place, like you and everybody else, I saw national news people from bombed-out buildings carrying their pets 
in their arms, and animal lovers all over the world were touched by people grab nothing else but their pets and the clothes on their back a lot of times. So that aroused my thinking. But number two, Dmitry Feld, who I just talked about, he was putting Ukrainian flags up and down Lake Placid. So I wrote out a check. And then I made the proverbial <laughs> statement, is there anything else I can do? And he said, as a matter of fact, there is. He said, they're in dire need of veterinary help in Ukraine. I'm semi-retired. I thought about it, and I said, why not, you know? Why, why not? It felt like a calling to me, you know, to help these people and to help the animals. My wife was not happy about this. She thought I was nuts. But to be fair to her, I didn't even know what I was getting into. I mean, there's, it's a war zone, you know? So uh, I didn't know how dangerous it was going to be. I, I wasn't even sure, as did I'm sure nobody knew wh- where the the military front was shifting or moving. Or so anyway, Dimitri and I we talked back and forth, and he arranged the whole trip with him going with me, just the two of us. We flew right out of Lake Clear Airport, which is three minutes from this house, right to Boston, Boston Heathrow in London, and then you know, on to Krakow, Poland, and we had to take a car ride and then get on a train in Poland and then a 10-hour train to Kiev, the capital of Ukraine. And then from there, we actually went about 30 miles further east to a city called uh, Irpin, and that's where I did uh, my veterinary work. That's where I was for 10 days straight doing surgery. And Erpin saw the brunt of the beginning of the war. There I saw bombed-out building after bombed-out building, and destroyed houses, hundreds of destroyed cars. It took a beating compared to Kiev itself. I wasn't in an active war zone, but I was in an area that had been, you know, saw the brunt of Russian occupation for a while. Did you have any reservations before or when you were seeing those buildings about going? Uh, I'm the kind of person, when I make up my mind to do something, after I weigh all the factors, I go straight ahead and I, I, don't, I don't have any doubts. I was not hesitant about the dangers or anything at that point. I just wanted to do it and help these people. And when, when I got there, it, it did not feel like a dangerous place. But in retrospect, looking back, I was in a lot more danger, I think, than I, than I knew of. I remember one morning on my third or fourth day, Dimitri and I were walking to the veterinary clinic. He interpreted for me all the time. And, but the person said to him, uh, there was a drone shot out of the sky two blocks down like four hours ago. You know, my eyes got kind of big. And they said, don't worry, our military's good. I saw tons of devastation from what had happened months before. Yeah, it was probably, I was probably in more danger than I thought I was, but I didn't feel like I was in much danger when I was there. I was focused on my work. You brought at least one drone with you for the Ukrainian military. Yes, that's correct. I didn't even know we were doing this myself. I, I actually had a whole massive suitcase full of veterinary supplies. About a week before we went, Dmitry Feld asked me, are you taking a carry-on? I go, well, why are you asking? <laughs> he 
He says, because if you're not, I'd like us each to take a military drone. He somehow had an avenue where he obtained these, so we each took a drone with us. I was surprised we didn't have trouble getting through security and everything else with these things, but we were fine. These are drones for surveillance, mostly, the ones we brought. Um, So they were really life-saving. And I understand they met you at the train station? Yeah, that's correct. We got in at the train station about 8 o'clock in the evening. It was very dark. I think the electricity was out once again. But anyway, when we got off the train and exited the, the station, which is quite beautiful, by the way, this whole military group was waiting to greet us and meet us. And then uh, the following day, I started my work, my my veterinary work. So what was your typical day like at the veterinary clinic? They'd always have anywhere between 8 and 11 animals for me to do surgery on, which is a lot. That would be a lot even for me at my veterinary clinic, but it was extremely difficult or stressful or, you know, taxing because... You know, they didn't have the modern things that I am used to. For instance, there was no gas anesthesia. So I had to do it all with chemical anesthesia. It's a lot more difficult, a lot more tricky. So that was one burden. The other was the lighting was terrible. And uh, the light they did have didn't work half the time because of the electricity that went out all the time. The technicians didn't speak a word of English. But I don't want to sound like I'm complaining, because this is a war-torn country, and I didn't expect when I went there for things to be any better than they were. In fact, the facility was better than I thought it would be. The building. It's a very modern building. Kiev itself, if if I took you to Kiev right now, you'd be amazed. You'd think you were in downtown Montreal. The buildings are gorgeous. Architecture is phenomenal. The culture, they have ballet, symphony orchestra. And you don't see many bomb buildings at all, at least not when I was there. Anyway, my point being, the facility was fine. It was just very trying conditions. But the good news is we did numerous spays and neuters and some other surgeries, but every patient did well, every single one. When you were treating the pets and the animals that came in, you mentioned spay and neuter, but were you encountering pets that were injured because of war injuries or things like that? Not really, because we were, um, we were still a ways from the front lines. You know, we were probably 50, 60 miles from the front lines, which is close enough, right? The reason the spay-neuter thing was so important is because so many of these animals that I was seeing had to be abandoned. They belonged to people, but a lot of people just had to take off and run for their lives, and they didn't want to leave their pets. So why the spay-neuter thing is so important is because now they have a much better chance of being adopted. You also had to operate on some military dogs, too. Mm-hmm. Is that true? Yeah, that's true. But they were not major war injuries. You know, nothing too melodramatic. Did that bring the war home to you at all? Well, it did. I'll tell you why. The military thing was it was very emotional because some of these dogs, their job was to smell out mines and bombs and things. But some of the other ones were for human remains, you know, to sniff out people that had died from bombed-out buildings. 
that brought the war right to me. You know, it, it was sobering. Did you get a chance to meet any Ukrainians and socialize at all with them? Absolutely. I had one half day off. That's when I got to do sightseeing in the Kiev, so-called sightseeing, if you want to call it that, in a war-torn country. But in the evenings, if you know Dmitry Feld, he's quite the guy. Uh, he hadn't been in Ukraine in 40 years, but after three days, it seemed like everybody knew who he was. So anyway, we were invited every other evening to dinner by some Ukrainian, either to their homes or to, believe it or not, nice restaurants very nice restaurants. What kind of memories will really remain with you from this trip? The journey there was one thing. Number two, the thing that I'll always remember is the total devastation. I'm not talking a few bombed out buildings. I'm talking hundreds and hundreds of homes, nice homes, just blown apart, just sadistically set on fire by Russian troops when they occupied the area. And then seeing the cars with machine gun bullets, and you know every one of those cars, occupants inside had perished. As a child, I remember seeing World War II black and white film strips of bombed out Germany or Poland or whatever, England, uh, London. So to me, that was all academic, you know. That was, <laughs> was something I got out of a high school history book or on a film strip, but I saw this live. I mean, I saw this. And it, 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 it looked like what I had seen from World War II era pictures. And uh, I didn't think I'd ever see that in my lifetime. And the third thing I took away from this whole venture was just how sophisticated and modern, you know, Kiev is and Lviv and let's just say the whole country, the Ukraine country. I think that's part of Putin's problem. He's jealous that this democratic, free country that was once part of the Soviet Union is doing so well. They're so modern and successful. And the fourth thing, and probably maybe the most important thing, is how kind and generous and appreciative the Ukrainian people are. Just because I say they're kind and generous and all that, they are also very tough and determined not to lose this war. After reminiscing, Dr. Kogar walks over to a cabinet to show some of the mementos and gifts he has received. After my whole trip was done, they had the FISU games. So my wife and I had the whole Ukrainian biathlon team for a pizza party. And then they brought me a bottle of vodka, and then they brought me a flag, and the whole biathlon team signed it. That was one thing. This came from the military. A plaque. Signed by the commander. And they sent me a flag, too. The military guys, and they all signed it. And, and the guys from the military gave me these patches off their arms. and It's just, I mean, they just never stopped, you know, showing their appreciation. Dr. John Kogar was in Ukraine from October 16th to the 31st. He hopes to return after the war is over. I'm Pepper Atley, WAMC News. All right, that does it for this episode of the WAMC News Podcast. Thanks so much for listening. Thanks to Josh and Pat for their great reporting. We'll have more from our series on the first anniversary of the war in coming episodes. Until next time, I'm Ian Pickus.